Um, today we want to look at uh, an epistle that I think has had a, a big impact on all of our lives. And uh, we want to look at an apostle uh, in particular, I think, who also has had a big impact in our lives. When somebody first comes to know the Lord, what's the, the book of the Bible? We usually say, hey, we've got to read this book first. Yeah, the book of John, I think I heard that coming out. And there's a reason that we recommend that book to start off with. When we think of the Apostle John, there's so much that took place in his life. And he's very clear and specific, very black and white about the truth. And the Apostle John was one that was known to be zealous for the truth. And I thought we could camp out here on some verses in actually 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. But before we get there, just some thoughts about the Apostle John. And I'm thinking of this in light of the society that we live in today. We, we are in a different time. Uh, the last year or so, uh, after all the, the, the COVID uh, virus that was going around, uh, we are experiencing a time not only in America where there's a rash of uh, anger, um, vengeance, uh, people just out to prove a point. We see it going on around the world, even in the restlessness that's going on with wars taking place, uh, the war in Ukraine with Russia, uh, even in Israel just recently being attacked. Um, People are not getting along. And one of the things that's going to stand out is believers And how do we react in uh, the events that take place in our lives, even on a personal level? Do we have anger, vengeance, uh, or are we different? And when we think of the Apostle John, he was known as one of the sons of thunder. And he was given that name by none other than Jesus himself. I mean, that's to be named that by Jesus, that says a lot. Um, The sons of thunder. And... He was called that along with his brother James because, you know, they weren't treated right one time by a Samaritan village. So, Lord, hey, should we call down fire and, and destroy this place? You know, this seems like a, a normal thing to do. No, not, not that quick. Lord's like, hold on. No. But John was zealous for the truth. John witnessed many things. The transfiguration, when they were there on that mountain, they saw Moses, Elijah, and they talked with Jesus. And you can imagine being up on that mountain and seeing such a wonderful transfiguration, seeing the glory as Jesus opened up his flesh, and it was a taste of heaven. And then after that, just being overwhelmed by that glory, Jesus says, don't go, you can't tell anybody this. (laughs) Imagine how hard that would be to not want to just go and tell everyone what you saw. But Jesus obviously entrusted them uh, by picking them to be on that mountain. But he witnessed that. Uh, John's mom asked Jesus if both John and his brother, James, could sit on either side of Jesus on his throne. She was, you know, one of those mothers uh, looking out for her sons, uh, you know. And the other disciples weren't too happy about that. And we don't know if uh, James and John maybe put her up to that, too. That's a possibility. Uh, John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross with the women and Mary, Jesus' mother. 
See that in John 19. Uh, Paul talks about John as one of the pillars uh, of the church, Galatians 2.9. And we know that John had a special relationship with Jesus to the point that on the night before he was betrayed and he mentioned that he was going to be betrayed, Peter looks over to John and says, hey, you ask him, who, who is it? Because he had that special relationship with Jesus. John was prepared with deep convictions, and we see that at the beginning of 1 John uh, when he talks about what we have seen, what we have beheld, what our hands handled. He was very clear about what he saw, but he was prepared with these deep convictions. He was also satisfied with whatever ministry role the Lord had for him at the foot of the cross. Uh, Jesus sees John down there with his mother, Mary, and he says, Mother, behold your son, and then son, behold your mother. Handing over that responsibility to John, he was willing to do whatever was asked of him. So John started out as a man zealous for the truth, rash. He, you could say he was sectarian, like only us. You remember when a man was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and he came to Jesus and said, Jesus, do you want me to stop him? No, you don't do that. But that was being, he's being very sectarian. He's not a part of us, Jesus, so how can he be doing this? He was very zealous for the truth. But to be zealous for the truth alone is not what is expected. You have to balance that with love, love. John uh, was a powerful leader, and we see him at the end of his life. He's, ha- he's taken care of Jesus' mother, more than likely in Ephesus at the church there where he would take care of Jesus' mother. But then he is taken to the island of Patmos, and there he's around 90 years old, and he's at the end, end of his life. And yet, at this point in time, he receives a glorious vision, the, the vision that comes on Revelation. And he was always ready for the next mission. And here, at the end of his life, John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And just some takeaways that we can think about from the life of John as we come into 1 John. He was zealous for good works. Uh, Be loyal, long-suffering, and always ready to help. Be content with the position and prestige or the lack of prestige that Christ gives you. Be concerned for the honor and the glory of God and Christ, not your own. Never be discouraged when things go against you. God may have more for you. And John went from impatience, anger, and intolerance to become known as the apostle of love. And we have to ask that question. How does this happen? How does this happen? We want to find out today. So in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, it starts off like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this 
is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Just some really convicting verses there about loving one another. In 1967, uh, there was a song released called All You Need Is Love, released by the Beatles. And the reason that they came up with the title of this song is because they were going to have an international worldwide event. And uh, John Lennon at the time thought, hey, you know, what is it that we could do that would capture the entire world's interest? And they came up uh, with a song around the word love because that was something that every language would understand. That's why they picked it. And, you know, if you listen to that song, it's, it's nothing deep, but it's, it's a catchy tune. And the world looks at love as something that feels good and whatever works for you. There's no clear definition, but it just sounds good, and we're just all getting along. Um, but it goes much deeper than that. And when we look at the Apostle Paul, we're going to learn about love because he sat at the feet of Jesus to learn from him. What better teacher could you have than Jesus? And so we want to look at love, the defining attribute of the true believer. And we're going to look at three implications of love that secure the true believer. Um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 to 12, it's an interesting passage because there it's talking about the coming of the Antichrist in the future. And when you get down into verse 10, and it's talking about those who fall for this Antichrist, it says, And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. They did not have a love for the truth. And when you don't have that love, this supernatural love that comes only from God, you're going to be deceived. You can be taken advantage of. So what is expected of those who do believe the truth? There in verse 7, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So the first implication is the product of love is assurance, assurance. So we're transitioning from the uh, section before in 1 John where it's talking about the spirit of error and how to be wise in discerning uh, between a a spirit of error, a deceitful spirit, false doctrine, and also what comes from God. And it talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth in verse 6, and we know that the reason that we can have love as believers, true love, is because of the Holy Spirit. We're children of God because we've been born of the Spirit of God, possessors of the Spirit of God. And we are, as believers, to love one another, one another. Those that are of the spirit of error are of the world, And they have the exact opposite features of loving one another. There isn't uh, love that love one another. There's a type of love, sure, at times, but it's a surface love. And it's dependent on circumstances. 
There's a special love that God the Father has for us, and we in turn show this love to each other. It's different uh, from the love that, say, we would have for people who don't know the Lord. They're apart from uh, Christ, and we have a heart that goes out for them, and we want to see them to come to know him. But this uh, love with believers is mutual, mutual, and it goes both ways, from one believer to another, and it's amongst the body of Christ. When, when you look at unbelievers, their love is one-sided, and that's a distinct difference. So the product of love is assurance, and God's love is the ground for mutual love. And John sets the example in urging them to love one another. He first assures them of his love for them and how much he cares for them. So just think about that in light of what we talked about from where John has come from, being very strident and uh, sectarian, you know, our team, you know, us only. And he's really encouraged them to love one another. His goal is to stimulate and encourage the practice of Christian love. Uh, The pronoun one another insists that this love be mutual. It goes in both directions. Uh, This mutual love points to the true character of the one loving. It's a high, unselfish love which freely seeks the true welfare of the one loved. We're not talking about uh, just some superficial love, but a deep love. Um, This is God-prompted love, and it cannot find its full realization with unbelievers. It's going to be fulfilled in the body of Christ. And when we think about the body of Christ, what do we experience together? Well, we go through all kinds of things, uh, trials that we go through, maybe uh, physical, medical situations, and we're praying for one another through those times, maybe financial hardships, relationship problems, loneliness. What it, you know, in the body of Christ, there should not be loneliness. Because Christianity is about one another and being involved in each other's lives and encouraging one another. So this love is from God. This love has as its source God. It's not the world. It's not dependent on our circumstances. It's supernaturally given to us from God. And John based his call for mutual love in the message that he proclaimed in the gospel. But here, the call is based on the nature and being of God himself, who God is. God is love. And that's not some kind of a vanilla love. It's a deep love, and it shows up in all the areas of our lives and the circumstances. So John here is also speaking to the entire community of believers the entire community of believers. Their commitment to mutual love is the requirement of the gospel. And he's revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And that revelation points to a self-sacrificing love. And this is why we must love each other. Someone that is born of God gives evidence by loving his brother. And this is as important as our righteous behavior. We are not born naturally with love. This love comes from God. So God is the originator or giver of love. So when we look at that, there's just two examples, two possibilities given uh, to us of those who love 
or don't love. The first one is the character of the one loving. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. Uh, This is the individual's practice of love, whether it's Godward or manward. That is the crucial test of his spiritual identity. Uh, He is born of God and knows God. And it's a double assertion here and shows the significance of such an active love, an active love. Born of God. True believers are compelled to love because we are born of God. God is the father of all who love sacrificially. This uh, individual knows God. In other words, there's a personal, intimate relationship that's going on with God. We have a personal God. It's not some ethereal force, uh, not an angry God that we can't approach. We have a personal, intimate relationship. And just think about John and his relationship with Jesus. It was a very close relationship that he had. So what does it mean if a person says they are a Christian but doesn't love? Uh, In this text, it's a person that does not know God at all because God in his very nature is love. And we have to look at this a little bit deeper and see what does John mean because he is very black and white about uh, truth. Uh, So the character of the one loving is one that knows God, is born of God. The second part of that is the character of the one not loving. This is the one who does not love and does not know God. So we have to examine our own lives and take account, you know, how am I doing in this category? Am I a loving person? I mean, we all have tendencies in our lives to certain strengths and weaknesses, but this is something that is required of us. Uh, To not know this distinctive love means a person is a stranger to God. If it's a continued pattern, because God is love. God is love stresses the personality of God to the fullest extent. Uh, The two nouns in the statement, God is love, are not interchangeable because the definite article in the original language occurs with God, but not with love. And so what that means is um, you can't say that love is God, um, but God is love. And the reason that's important is because people would like to say, uh, who are very, like, pantheistic, they would say, God is in everything. Uh, You can reverse it. Um, Pantheism says that, you know, a tree is God, a mountain is God, the material things are God. But love is of God, and it's not God itself, but God is love. And all that God does, he does in love. So just think about that. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, which a lot of times that's where people have a hard time, how can a God judge in this way and yet be loving? But if he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of his nature. If we fail to love, we do not know him, John says, because we do not have his nature, because if we are of God, we're going to have that nature, the nature to love. When we look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, all the way to chapter 5, verse 3, love is found 32 times. Um, he's highlighting that all over the place. And we, we can look at many examples of God's love, and one in particular has to do with the sending of Jesus Christ 
and the sacrifice that he made for us. In Romans 5.8, it talks about God commended his, his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place. Um, one of the traditions that a Jewish family would have uh, going to the temple, they would bring a lamb into the family, and that lamb would become a pet. And so you began to love that little lamb, and the children got attached to it. And then came time to go to the temple to make the sacrifice. And you're taking your, your little pet to be slaughtered uh, for your sins. And, you know, that would hurt. That would be a difficult thing to do. But that's the point of the sacrifice, realizing the penalty of sin is death. And so as we look at this, God first loved us so that we can love one another. This mutual love gives us assurance to know that we are in the faith because we have this love. We're loving one another, not in perfection, not perfectly all the time, but we have that desire to love. We're born of God and know God. The second implication of love is the demonstration of love in God's sacrifice. In verse 9 here in chapter 4, by this The love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How did God reveal himself to us? Obviously in his word, have that testimony, but in sending his son, he manifested himself. The demonstration of love in God's sacrifice. And as a part of that sacrifice, we see that his love demonstrated in the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus. Um, In verse 9, we have further explanation of what it means that God is love. And this is similar to John 3.16. John was sent by God and went, or Jesus was sent by God and went back to God. And the term only begotten son links together the thought of only begotten and well-beloved, well-beloved. The father sent the son, but at what cost? In Matthew 21, 37, we have a picture given there where it talks about the, uh, the man who sent his son unto them. And he didn't spare, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all in Romans 8, 32. Christ is the only born son as distinct from the many who have become sons. There is no other. The love is manifested toward us and in us. We are the sphere in which the love of God is manifested. And that's a huge responsibility as believers. We represent Christ. God's purpose in sending Jesus was that we might have everlasting life and to not perish because of his self-sacrificing love. And this impacts all of us to know the type of love we must display. It is not our love that is primary, but God's free, uncaused, and spontaneous love. And all our love is but a reflection of his and a response to it, as John Stott puts it. John 3, 16 to 17, points us to how God is love, He sent his only son into this world in order that we might live. Do we stop and realize that God took this action 
on his own for us. The incarnate coming of Christ was the unmistakable manifestation of divine love. Just the appearance of Jesus was a manifestation of the love that he had for us. And it was manifested. One of John's favorite terms means to make visible, to make clear, come out into the open. Because there was a shadow of things in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system that demonstrated redemption and sacrifice for sin. But now Jesus came, as Hebrews talks about at the very beginning in chapter 1, at the appointed time, and God made it clear. This implies that before the coming of Christ in the Incarnation, this love had not been displayed in such a personal, dynamic manner. And when we look at that, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. His Son, and only begotten one, was unique, and it makes these designations uh, distinct. He was sent, and that's in the perfect tense, and it points to the abiding impact of God sending Christ into our world. He was sent by the Father, Hebrews 3.1. Love from God is a part of that impact. He was sent to us here. There is a redemptive nature of God's love in the purpose of God sending his son. And what is that? That we might live through him. There are real-life actions that took place to demonstrate God's love. Number one, God's love required him to send his son. Secondly, God's love in us requires deeds by which we show our love for one another. And, we sh- and it's in us, he says there, in us. It demonstrates it in us. So in other words, we are the medium in which God revealed his son and for whom the revelation was effective. Only begotten, one and only, God is the one who initiated this act of sending his son. God has salvation in mind with his demonstration of love, but also our living in mind too. That's why we are to love one another. So we are to live in love, and it should be visible to others to see God working in us visibly, working through us. So that was the demonstration of love in the incarnation. Now we see the demonstration of love in the atonement. The Son was sent to those who were spiritually dead, but he came to give them life. What was the purpose of Christ's mission? To give life with the result being ongoing possession of eternal life. Uh, Because that's what was lost in Eden. God created us in such a way that we would live forever. But because of man's sin, we die. We die physically. And it was even at that very point from the very beginning that God had a plan to rescue us in spite of our disobedience. Um, And we might live through him. The we is emphatic here and points out the contrast between sinful humanity and a loving God. Fallen humanity is not naturally in love with God, uh, whom the Son came to reveal. And the He Himself shows the contrast to we, us. His love was original and spontaneous, the source of all other love. 
And it uses that word uh, loved and talks about uh, the fact that it's a historical, redemptive work of Christ. It looks back to Christ's sacrifice. So there's a difference between the believer's love and also the love of the false teachers that John was also addressing at that time. Uh, They had a love that was not supernatural love, a love that was unconditional, a sacrificing love. They were in it for themselves. The believer's love is an agape love. That's the word that's used here. And that points out that, yeah, we are to give of ourselves. It's unconditional. And John points to the fact that God loved us and not that we loved God. More than likely, John was highlighting the fact that the the false teachers were saying we loved God, that it's dependent on us. Uh, They were teaching a heresy. And what was our attitude before God came? Well, one of enmity. We didn't love him or seek him, Romans 3.11. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he gave himself up as a sacrifice for us. The death of Jesus Christ did not change the heart of God as if one who hated us now loves us. Rather, it opened the floodgate so that the love of God for sinners could be poured out to them through Jesus Christ. And our sins includes the need of John himself and his readers. God is love and love finds an object. He found us and loved us. And even though we are undeserving, we, we were dead in our sins, undone and wandering alone. He found us. This agape love can only be given uh, by God when it has first been uh, received uh, by us. True love exists only as a response to his initial love for us. Think about what God has done since the beginning of time. Creation, Garden of Eden, the fall of man, and then God had given specific instructions. Man disobeys God's instructions. Man suffers the consequences of sin. God rescues man through sacrifice and ultimately the ultimate sacrifice of his only son, and that's love. So there's a big difference here between the love of the world and the love of God. The love of God is a personal and intimate love. And our God loves us that way, with a sacrificial love. So we've seen God's demonstration of love and the sacrifice of his son. Now, the, th- the third point, we will see the, the target of our love given to us from the Father, the target of love, and that's others, others. Verses 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. In 3.16 of 1 John, we see how Jesus laid down his life for his brothers. This is love. Now John is showing us God, the Father's love. F.F. Bruce, a commentator, puts it like this. If the children of God must be holy because he is holy and merciful because he is merciful, So they must be loving because he is loving. Not with the must of external compulsion, but with the must of inward constraint. God's love is poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit, 
whom they have received. Romans 5, 5. And John starts it off there. It says, beloved. John, John says this again for the sixth and last time. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here the if is the same as since God so loved us. And it's an immense love that, that God has for us. John three sixteen. God sent his only begotten son, that unique son, to be the sacrifice for us. He's the only one that could be the sacrifice for our sins. And so we have the obligation of mutual Christian love, mutual Christian love. And this is the target of love, others. Here in um, verse 11, he's highlighting uh, through the usage of the word so and also, if I then the Lord and the teacher, this is in John thirteen fourteen, if I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So here in verse 11, if God so, he says that in uh, verse 11, where he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, this was a, an exhortation that he's giving to us. God so loved us, and then we also, like God, should give in the same way, sacrificing, and we ought to love one another. Notice this exhortation is based upon Calvary, what Christ did for us on the cross. It's recalling his sacrificial love. God manifested this love not because of our merit, but because of our need, the need that we have. And it's our obligation to love one another. So the significance of our mutual love, the first part of this was the obligation that we have as believers to love one another. Now, the significance. Uh, he goes on in verse 12, 1 John 4, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And again, he's looking at the false teachers. He's pointing out that contrary to what the false teachers were saying, nobody has seen God. They were saying that they had seen God. And he's reacting to that, and he's pointing this out. Loving one another must replace, in some sense, uh, seeing God in his essential being. In other words, God is invisible. We can't see him. But his presence, when Jesus went back to heaven, he said, I will be with you, um, and he will return again. But how is he with us now? Well, with one another in the body of Christ. That's how Christ is seen. And so, in some sense, it replaces the fact that we cannot see God, but we can see through our love that that is evidence that God abides, that abides and God dwells in us. God's love for us is the example as well as the stimulus for our practice of mutual love. So the nature of God as unseen, the unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people. And when they love one another, God's love is seen in their love because their love is his love imparted to them by his spirit. John Stott said that. While men cannot see God, it is possible to see his character exhibited in his people. It's not our love that is perfected, but his love revealed in us so that men see God by his features being displayed in us. The relation between mutual love and God's love in us. 
you might think that uh, John would, would respond like, like he did in John 1.18. God, the only Son who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Instead, John turns to love here. If we love each other, we know God is present with us. As God was once present in his Son, now he is present through the community of faith. And it is in this community the fellowship of believers, that love has its ultimate fulfillment. God's love originates in himself and was manifested in his son, is perfected in his people. God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us or among us in the Christian fellowship. The main concern of John is not some fruit or blessing here, but in reality, the manifestation of God's presence in the world through the fellowship of believers. So, summarizing, true Christians have fellowship with the God who is love. He, he is love. And in these verses, chapter 4, 7 to 12, true Christians are characterized by love. What are three reasons that we're characterized by this quality? It's because of God's character. It's because Christ lives in us, and his redeeming love requires us to love. And again, it's not that we loved God, as John's opponents were claiming, but he loved us. God's love shines the light on our sinfulness. God's love gives his only son for our sinfulness. God's love gives us his righteousness instead of what we deserve. You know, what wondrous love uh, he has given to us. And the consummate example of divine love is the cross, the cross. No greater love has any man than he laid down his life for his friends, John fifteen thirteen. And when we hear that, we think of that many times as a principle, uh, no greater love. And that's true, that's true. But we can't reduce it to just the principle of someone gives their life in war for someone else even though that's a great sacrifice, there's a difference to what took place with Jesus. It points to the fact that Jesus died for our sins. He did what no other human could do. His life and only his life could pay the penalty for our sin. This is love. It's a supernatural love. Getting what we don't deserve because of God's grace. So, the three implications of love that give security to us. Uh, we have the assurance of our salvation because we're practicing the one another love and it demonstrates that we're his children. Secondly, God's demonstrated love for us in the sacrifice of his son because of what he did for us. That's why we are his children. And third, true love targets others, not ourselves. We are secure in our salvation based on his sacrifice and ready to love other believers because he first loved us. So thinking about the Apostle John, in the beginning, he needed grace. At the end of his life, he needed grace. At the beginning of his life, he was zealous for truth, and he didn't let anybody stand in his way to promote the truth. But after sitting at the feet of Jesus, we see in his writings an overwhelming flood of love that he learned at the feet of Jesus, that it's a balance of truth and love. 
So much so that we would look at Ephesians 4, 13 to 15 as our ultimate goal. This is from Paul, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We have to have that balance. And as John grew older, he was in his 90s, God was still using him. He had outlived all the other apostles, and Jesus made that clear that that was going to be the case. And he didn't always stand out like Peter did and and maybe some of the other apostles. He was back behind the scenes quite a bit. But what a strategic role he had to become known as the apostle of love, someone who was zealous. And Pastor MacArthur points out in his book um, on the, the 12 extraordinary apostles or ordinary men, he has a quote at the end on John, the apostle John, where he says, Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus um, that he had to be carried into the church. One phrase was constantly on his lips, and he said, My little children love one another. Asked why he always said this, he replied, quote, It is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. It is enough. And that's what we need to strive after as, as believers. Because, you know, we... We look at the age in which we live, and it's always been like this, but it's ramping up more and more. And I think we're going to have a temptation to get angry, maybe even strike back at times for those who come at us, persecute us. Um, We were speaking of the conference in uh, Poland recently, and we were there with the missionaries, and we made a a trip uh, to, to Auschwitz just to see the... The, the camp there, and it was just a, a sobering time. Uh, it was a difficult thing to experience and see. But as we were kind of going through that that place, we were just talking amongst ourselves and saying, you know, I, I could see that one day with Christians. Maybe not exactly like that, but physical persecution and killing. Um, we're not quite at that point yet. It, it does take place in other parts of the world, sure. But we need to be confident in who we are in Christ as the Apostle John was to the point of being whatever comes, Lord. But I'm going to love you. I'm going to love one another in the body of Christ. And I'm still going to have a love for the unsaved uh, no matter what they do to me. So may we strive after that. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you uh, love us and uh, that you are the one that initiated the love. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. May we love one another as you loved us, as you set the standard. And we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe um, 
I do have five minutes. I don't know if there's any questions. Um, I'm kind of learning this new uh, the question and answer time. But if you have any questions or comments at all, and if not, that's fine. Okay. The three, okay. I had, um, let's see, you've got, you know, so you got the love, the defining attribute of the true believer, right? Let me give you, I have my outline here. You've got the product of love, assurance, that one? Okay. Okay. And, Well, I can take a look at it afterwards and see what you're missing. So, <laughs> all right, yes. Yeah, and there's different words you know, in different passages that are used for different types of love, but in particular, agape love. Um, yeah, it, it is in, in your actions. Um, it's an unconditional love, um, but it's also in what we say and how we say things to one another. Um, so it's, it's a whole multitude of ways. But that specific one, agape love, is demonstrated uh, just how we live. And we talked about that, you know, how we live in Christ. So when you think about our life in Christ here in, in the body at, at church where we serve, uh, the church, we serve the Lord. Um, that's just going to show up in our actions, what we say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, where we're supposed to what? Uh, well, that, yeah, that would still be an agape love that we would have have for God. Um, I don't know that there's a specific word used for that, but but yeah, we're to love God with our whole heart, um, and because He loved us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just from a human perspective, that it wasn't anything that uh, we did. To make it happen, God chose to love us. So maybe that's a better word is he chose to love us. And, and from our human perspective, you could say it's spontaneous. It, it wasn't something that we knew was coming. And it's something that's supernatural that he does. Uh, we, and the false teachers of John's time were, were saying, hey, we are the ones that love God. And uh, so that's what makes things happen. But that's works. You know, you're doing works on your own, and we, we, don't, we can't do that. We're, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. God is the only one that can make us alive. And when he does that, we've, we've, we hear his word, and uh, that word cuts to our heart by his spirit. Uh, we're redeemed. Uh, we, he's the one that makes us alive. So that's, that's what I meant in that sense. Okay? All right. Well, uh, on that case, you're dismissed.